Mark Badeau uh, was our, our final guest, and Mark raised a number of really interesting uh, questions. I mean, particularly, again, as with Larry, I thought the second half of, of Mark's uh, discussion on Bias Live was um, in some regard more challenging and more interesting than the first half. I thought his discussion with regards to West artificial life was very interesting, and I think he's, as, as came through, um, particularly uh, when talking about Craig Wittner, I think he's a, a positivist in the extreme with regards to a lot of these components. I think the challenge really is how we create simulations that assist the West artificial life community in the same point also, you know, lead back into the soft artificial life community and to a certain extent as well, the hard artificial life community. In terms of the first half of, of uh, Mark's appearance on Bio's Live, is that what you got as well in terms of how we as soft artificial life developers can assist the wet artificial life community? I, I don't know. I don't, see, uh, I don't see there being a lot of overlap, actually. I think there's a, um, a significant difference in the background you have to have to be able to play in those two domains, don't you think? Well, my understanding from talking with him was there's almost an agreed-upon API within wet artificial life, which can then be passed to soft artificial life developers. So if, you look, the, if, if you look at the way that they create protocells, for example, and uh, the whole paradigm with regards to describing the protocell almost in a digital sense, or at least in something that's uh, analogous or considerably closer to computational simulation than um, you know the stuff that Dick Gordon talks about, for example... This gives uh, almost an API-like interface, and I think certainly, you know, what happens in the future is you have people like Dick who perpetually instigate discussion, and you have people like Bruce who perpetually bring people into discussion, um, you know, moving in their particular directions, and you have Mark doing what he's doing, and the uh, protocols are growing. I certainly um, was impressed with the last Starfish Life journal that had some discussion with regards to uh, protocells and the overlap uh, in terms of simulation, although I haven't, I don't own the uh, Protocell book, uh, but I think it's there is potential in the future. But it is through this idea of the API, and my hope is that that was the the right reading of what Mark was saying. Uh, but certainly that was my sense on the call. The thing that really interested me about the discussion with Mark, as I said, was the second half, and particularly how, as with Larry Yeager, we really need to have people like Mark in the discussion, um, because I think certainly. Little things like, you know, that he, he didn't know about Gray, some of these kind of things uh, are obviously uh, points that can be built on. But also the um, potential power uh, that the International Society can have and also the potential good that the International Society can have within the artificial life community. Have you ever been a member of the International Society of Artificial Life, Gerald? Uh, no, no, no I've, nothing, uh, I've never had anything to do with it, no. Yeah, I've been a member for the past four years. It's $65 a year, and you get four journals for that money. Um, and I would like to think, moving into the future, and certainly this is the feedback that I gave to Mark from his last appearance, that the International Society could be a lot more proactive, particularly with regards to the uh, hobbyist and also industrial components, industrial uses of artificial life, but also with regards to the academic community. And I don't know what form that will take. I think the upcoming elections are going to be very beneficial. But my main concern is that um, I've not been able to get anyone from the 
kind of broader biota community that isn't already a member to the International Society to actually pay the $65. This in part is my fault because I've been able to get free copies of the journal and various other things for people over the past four years and, and shout out here to Kathleen Kennedy at uh, Reed because she does an amazing job uh, getting wide, you know, wide variety of folks in the community free copies. I think they just print way too many. So in some regards I have um, self-sabotaged and probably subsidised the official life journal in this regard, but I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting group that could run in parallel to Biota. Um, and certainly what I'd like to see Biota doing is really just instigating and promoting discussion. But I think the International Society has a degree of formalism and certainly an existing connection with an academic community, uh, which is very different than the kind of folk who are obviously listening to Biota Live and participating in the Biota community. But I think it doesn't necessarily have to be completely in parallel. I think there are a number of joining points. Um, and certainly Mark has been very receptive to that in his communication with me and Bruce Damer. Um, and I think there's a great degree of potential in the future. But reflecting on the ideas of, um, as you say, with regards to these conventions, um, obviously the International Society has been heavily connected with the A-Life Convention as well. I've never attended an A-Life Convention. Have you ever attended an A-Life Convention, Gerald? No, what have there been, like 11 or so now? Yeah, the next one will be the 12th one. Uh, the last one was the first in, in Europe. It was in the U.K., but the previous ones have all, I think, all exclusively been in the U.S. There are now additional A-Life conferences. The fourth Australian A-Life conference is happening at the end of this year, um, and I know that there is a, uh, a European A-Life conference, which may be annual. So the A-Life conference itself is, um, you know, it, it straddles a very interesting line in terms of, as, as you say, these indigenous conferences that are, that are cropping up um, elsewhere. But I think it was interesting listening to Mark and also reflecting on my own situation. I mean, as you said, the cost associated for uh, a non-academically affiliated individual to get to even one of these conferences is quite great. Uh, and I hope with the last Day Life conference was that it would be held in the U.S. because that would give me some opportunity to attend. Um, unfortunately, I think the last Day Life conference was so successful in the U.K., the next one will probably be somewhere in Europe or uh, or Asia or somewhere like that, because I think there's, a, or maybe even South America. I mean, the South American artificial life community is, is strengthening, you know, by the year, um, thanks to Avida and a wide variety of other, um, you know, organizational efforts that are existing there. So I'm not sure where the next day life conference will be, but it's certainly, aside from the journal, the other uh, aspect of um, the International Society. The International Society also maintains if you look at the journal, probably a third of the folk on there, including Professor Dawkins and Tom Ray and Craig Reynolds, are historical figures. Um, and I'm not really clear, and this is a question I didn't have the chance to ask Mark about specifically, how these people are actively integrated in, in what the international society does. But it's an interesting group, and I think in the future maybe through these elections, if people actually join the International Society, maybe not through the elections, you know, we can we can motivate some small changes in, in, in various ways. But I think just an openness to things like the international, you know, curriculum, what is artificial life as it's being taught in universities, I mean, these kind of things are, are fascinating. And I think also we really need to start addressing as a community, and this is really more on a biota level than an international society level, um, the industrial aspects of artificial life. I mean, what interested me as well from what Mark was saying 
was this idea that the way artificial life is used in industry is always, you know, adjunct. It's never primary. And I think of things like Java, for example. Obviously, you're you're very well versed in the Java community. I mean, Java is used for a wide variety of applications, but also as a thing in and of itself. And it certainly has value both as something that facilitates a wide variety of technologies, but also something in and of itself. I mean, do you think that's a, a similar analogy with artificial life? What do you mean analogy to what? As artificial life is used in industry is akin to the way Java is used in industry in some regard. Well, no, <clears throat> as far I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able to say anything about how uh, artificial life is used in industry, and uh, and you know the way that Java is used is it's on a scale and and that that's it's hard to imagine actually. So, you know, it's it's in so many different places and uh, and it's doing so many different things. You know, artificial life in industry is still something you uh, you have to be careful about mentioning. I don't, I mean, this is true. This is the funny thing. To put the words artificial life together with regards to specific technologies may still be frowned upon within industry, but I mean, to have someone like uh, Ed Selferton, for example, who is using artificial life algorithms at Lilly currently. I've had correspondence from uh, a fellow um, in San Diego who's working in a similar capacity using artificial life um, algorithms uh, in a pharmaceutical company. I mean, I think the more people that you get in contact with, obviously uh, our friends in New York at Goldman Sachs who are using artificial life algorithms uh, with what they do. I mean, I get a lot of correspondence from people in a wide variety of industries that are using artificial life algorithms for what they're doing. I think what interests me is it's only through the fact of doing these podcasts and getting people who listen to these podcasts who are in these areas doing these things with artificial life, that anyone can really get a scope of where artificial life is being used currently. I wonder how many people, uh, how many of the people who use it in industry would call it that? Well, this is a very interesting thing. I mean, obviously enough that they found the Biota podcast. Mm, okay. It could well be, Tom, that uh, that the uh, the Biota podcast is one of those things not fit for work, you know? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe headphones only listening. But I think, I mean, what I found through my surveying is that it's incoherent to say that artificial life isn't used in industry. And certainly I picked up Mark Badeau on that instantly. The problem here is that we just have no adequate surveying of how it's actually being used. And conversely, if we had that surveying and we went back to Lilly, Intel, IBM, et al., Goldman Sachs, and said, isn't it amazing that you're using this unifying technology together? I don't know. What's your sense with regards to how Sun does that with Java? I mean, how does Sun get industries that are using Java to contribute back to Sun in some regard? How does that work? Well, they've uh, they've open sourced the virtual machine, of course, and uh, so that was already about a year ago that they uh, started working on that in in, uh, in on, a, on a large scale, and now it's it's basically complete. So uh, it's uh, you know, in in a sense, it's belongs to the community now and uh, you know there's just so much technology built into the virtual machine it's it's unreal i mean there's so much uh thinking that's gone into it so many uh i can imagine phd theses on uh on exciting subjects like uh, garbage collection and uh you know uh different uh different algorithms for uh for managing pointers and, and whatever else you know there's all sorts of thinking that can go go on uh in the virtual machine especially since the the virtual machine actually busies itself with um you know analyzing the behavior of code and recompiling it 
uh, from time to time to make it uh, more efficient during runtime. So you know, as there's just so there's such a rich potential for um, you know studying uh, how to improve a virtual machine because you've got uh, you've got a view of um, you know a running program, so you can you can optimize what needs to be optimized according to the run of the program rather than a static analysis beforehand. Beforehand, a decade of brilliant brilliant thoughts went into the virtual machine. I've accidentally gotten you started talking about your other love, which is Java. So perhaps perhaps moving back a little bit to artificial life, I think what you've done is outlined perfectly my point with regards to the fact that we can't do one or the other. We need to have academia basically moving to unify what artificial life is in parallel to industry because, I mean, this is what you're saying, that the, the academic component of Java actually assists with the industry component and also it creates a shared language. It creates a shared, um, although it's a, a bit of a pun with regards to Java, but it creates a, you know, a shared set of ideas that links both academia with industry. But moving on to another topic that's come through the Biota uh, Conversations mailing list. In fact, this was from Mark Bedeau himself with regards to uh, discussing his talk at the uh, Futurist. I think it's already occurred, but uh, Mark Bedeau uh, did a talk. In fact, it's happening this evening. I think it might actually be happening right now. <laughs> and Mike Bodo is giving his talk. But he mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, Darwin's 200-year um, anniversary and also 150 years of the origin of species. But he made a point at the end that The Guardian, uh, the newspaper, had said half of all Britons don't believe in evolution. And I think this was a statistic which I had only attributed to the US, but The Guardian is now attributing to the UK as well. My thinking from this, and I know I'm speaking to the choir with regards to a number of folks who listen to this podcast, is that we are in an unusual position as artificial life developers to actually change that and improve the situation. As we are now in a position where Professor Dawkins has retired, I mean, he's going to obviously be part of the... Uh, the community uh, leading on as he writes children's books and you know talks about various things. But what do you think we can learn from Professor Dawkins in terms of improving the numbers of folk who at least believe in evolution, Gerald? Uh, it, it's uh, what what Professor Dawkins would call it would be uh, consciousness raising. It's it's really just a question of. Uh, Getting the information out more than anything else, and and avoiding misconceptions. You know, trying to uh, you know to, to to clear away some of the cobwebs, which is what I want to do with Darwin at home. You know, the the whole idea is I want to invite people out to uh, to play around with it. You know, invites you into the algorithm. The whole idea is to get people acquiring a feel for it, so that all the the, the the academic uh, aspects of it can uh, can come later if you, if you uh, become more interested, but you can have a basic idea of, of what it is and what it isn't. People have to lose the people have to lose the inappropriate associations. You know, you have to you have to. There, the the reason a lot of people uh, will say that they don't believe in evolution. The reasons they don't believe are quite bizarre if you, if you dig into it. So if you, that, that's the interesting thing, you know, to find out why. Because usually it's tied to things that you wouldn't expect at all. Now, there's, there are certain big reasons why people don't believe. And if they can be, uh, if they can be sort of erased, then, then you'll have uh, a natural tendency to, uh, you know, if, 
people can develop a little curiosity, then uh, they will uh, they will discover that um, you know every, every everybody is sort of agreeing that you know it, it's uh, evolution happened. It's obvious. It can be proved five completely different ways. So you know, get in the game. It's 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 unfortunate that people are. Um, stuck on these issues. It'd be nice if you could sort of disassociate it with all the the bizarre uh, connections that, that hold it back. Yes, I think it's an interesting metric because it's a contemporary metric. I mean, going into the future, obviously, we will have these kind of surveys. And it was interesting that the Pew Research uh, Center was attached to it because I've um, demonstrably found errors in a number of the previous uh, pre Pew Research Surveys. In fact, they're notoriously flawed for a wide variety of reasons, typically sample size, but also just the, uh, the surveying methodology. And I think the idea of do you believe in evolution is probably a loaded question in terms of the way people sure. are going to respond. There are to it. lots, of, lots of ways to, to ask that question, but you know, it's it's like uh, it's like the question, do you believe in God? That's it's it's almost a bizarre, absurd question. The answer to that is just not Boolean, you know. It's just <laughs> You're talking about science here. I mean, it's a bit like saying, do you believe in calculus? Do you believe in, you know, the, the notion of belief associated with something that is part of science, I find really quite curious. And this shows the framing of the problem as well. I mean, it shows that... I, I know lots of people who don't believe in calculus. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly I mean, my point. My point yeah, is that yeah. <laughs> what you're seeing here is, in fact, probably a strong criticism of a variety of educational problems. It could actually be quite primary and not related to um, large-scale uh, conspiracies, uh, which, which occur on, on, on both sides. I mean, this is Dick Gordon surveying perfectly. So I think the, the nature of the problem, in some regards, needs to be reframed, and we are ideally placed for that. Do you see, in terms of the folk that come after Dawkins, do you see logical successes to him in terms of science representation, in terms of atheism? Is there a new Dawkins, do you think? Well, you know, he's a hard act to follow. I mean, if you, if you look at what he wrote in 1976, you know, when your jaw drops then and then you read it in 1995 and then you read it in 2008 and it's still... It still is amazing to read that the ideas that uh, that, uh, get, that you know were were put in his his books. Um, you know, you, you, we just you just have to wait, I suppose, for for someone of of similar stature. There's he started a lot of balls rolling. One of them, for example, is the whole idea of a meme that took on an entire life of its own and became. Uh, you know, another sort of discipline that is slowly creeping into academia, academia can be uh, it can be used as a useful model. I think in, in the social sciences and a number of other areas as well. Yeah, up Just, until a know, couple of years ago, I was under the impression that Dawkins was going to write uh, an anti-New Age book following the God Delusion. In fact, certainly um, my understanding was that there were chapters written towards this. And from what I'd heard from people that had, had sussed this, was, was the idea that he was actually going to write uh, an anti-contemporary mimetics treaty as part of that, because obviously mimetics has become a thing that is so completely removed from contemporary Dawkins, particularly as it exists in a New Age sense. 
that uh, my understanding was that he was going to write against that in the, in the, the book, and I think, however, uh, that that idea was, was shelved, and I don't know what the, the time frame is with regards to the children's books or what, well, what he's far, doing. As far as I know, as far as I know, if, uh, from everything I've read, uh, Dawkins has uh, has avoided uh, the whole uh, idea or the you know the whole discipline of memetics, just saying it's it's not my thing. I'm not uh, I'm not uh, going to uh, talk much about it because other people can do it better, and and a lot of people have, especially you know something like uh, Darwin's Dangerous Idea by Dennett. It's just uh, it's an incredible book on the subject, and if you want to if you want to dive deep into memetics, that's that's the book to have. So talk but to the Dennett primary about. the primary memetics reference that he makes aside from Dennett is Susan Blackmore. And Susan Blackmore is very much a New Age figure. So yeah. I yeah, she was actually she was. If you look into her history, she began as a total New Age uh, person, and then uh, that that sort of uh, didn't didn't last. She's uh, she sort of lost that later she on. She still speaks at the Mind States conferences, which are predominantly. I mean, I've heard and I've heard her recent Mind States conferences, and it's very much of the New Age. I mean, my thinking was that... I'd like, to, I'd like to hear what she says at them, because I can appreciate, you know, returning to a community that you're familiar with and, uh, and coming with a new message. So it'd be interesting exactly what she says, not necessarily that she appears. You know, it's just like writing in Dick Gordon's book. Exactly. You don't have to, you don't have to be a creationist. No, no, I, I agree entirely. I'm, I'm, uh, whilst I'm not as loose as, as I'd normally be on these kind of calls, um, uh, I, I encourage people who have access to... Um, her speaking. I mean, my my interest with regards to Dawkins has always been the paradoxes, particularly the the anti-science atheists that he's picked up on and embraced through, um, you know, particularly his recent work. I mean, I think this is what's fascinating with Dawkins in terms of the way he can resolve these paradoxes. And my hope with his future writing, which seems to have been prematurely cut short in some regard, is that he would actually address that within his own writing. To a certain extent, he has done that, um, particularly if you look at his works in the 80s and early 90s. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of continued um, set of ideas. And certainly, I think, as we start looking at these kind of popular metrics, like do you believe in evolution and these kind of things, maybe these are either the metrics that, you know, future, future Dawkins, as they listen to Biota Live, or as I hope they listen to Biota Live, Start considering whether whether the metrics are even valid, and whether new metrics need to be created in order to actually set challenges to resolve into the future. Because I certainly think, in terms of a popular saturation, uh, you know, Dawkins' legacy is there. Um, but in terms of actually solving real-world problems, in terms of actually addressing what is going on with regards to evolution and belief, and how this has to change in the future. These are really questions which are still, you know, percolating through the, the community that Dawkins has, has stoked, such as, you know, yourself, well, myself, and Dawkins, others who are listening. Dawkins hasn't, you know, hasn't been able to or, or been, you know, it's not his thing to address every demographic. It's not, it's not easy, you know. So uh, with, with, for example, the God delusion, he has uh, obviously, um, you know, it's been, it's been read a hell of a lot. Um, and uh, a lot of people are sort of shocked by it and, and taken aback and, and whatever uh, because it's uh, it's just too much but for them and a lot of people have criticized the fact that it's so uh, you know over the top 
but on the other hand, you know, it's it sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a, a significant demographic that is really, you know, just fully appreciative of the book. And, and In your own reading, have you read much Bertrand Russell, for example? I haven't read much specifically, more, more citations and things, but no, not, not actual books of his. Yeah, I mean, as someone who, who read a lot of Bertrand Russell, kind of in parallel to um, early Dawkins before The God Delusion, and similarly, having done other surveying, I mean, my sense reading The God Delusion, and I, I sped read it, was that if you had read Russell prior to reading The God Delusion, you would have wanted Dawkins to do more Russellian analysis. I felt a lot of it, and I say this actually in Dick Gordon's book, was a kind of call, counter call to the worst aspects of the popular anti-atheist movement um, in this country, people like Ann Coulter, who I don't think are Dawkins intellectual equal. I don't think it's Dawkins. I always felt that he'd lowered his standards by answering these kind of, you know, nonsense illogical claims. And certainly I've already discussed what two years ago with you, um, the aspects of history that he had no reason to address. The only people that talk about Hitler and these kind of things are, you know, don't understand the kind of logic that his movement from people like Bertrand Russell had built up. So, I mean, I think what is interesting now is that the, we are moving into something where Dawkins will obviously continue to exist, continue to write, continue to participate, as people like Dennett do as well. But it's for, it's for the active participants currently. I mean, people that Dick Gordon is instigating, I mean, people who may not listen to this podcast but are part of the, you know, what Dawkins has started, Dawkins Youth Movements, for example, that need to be seriously thinking about what happens in the future when these metrics are raised, like, you know, half of all Britons don't believe in evolution. But I think it's interesting that the, you know, the biota community is also part of this discussion through our, you know, our early instigation from Dawkins, which you talked about when you came on in, in Thanksgiving time frame. Do you think we as artificial life developers will ever get away from these kind of questions, or do you think they're always perennially going to be part of the artificial life discussion? Well, I mean, Tom, what's it like to create artificial life? I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, your own little god delusion, right? Unfortunately, folks, this is where the tape runs out. As you've heard, a number of good discussions this evening. Apologies again to Gerald de Jong for not catching all the audio. However, I think a number of good discussions were caught. I'm heading to Australia for the next few weeks. I will be back in about a month's time with William R. Buckley to discuss artificial life on the atomic level, March 27th at 8pm Pacific. Look forward to talking to you all then. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thanks to Gerald again for participating.